0: Okay, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Continuing in our study of this book that we started a number of weeks ago, and we happen to be in a portion of the book that is, in, in a lot of ways, some of the easiest stuff in the whole book of Revelation to understand. Because what we have here are seven letters written to seven churches that are in Asia, East, uh, Western Asia Minor, which would be what we would call parts of Turkey today. Uh, and we've covered uh, a couple of those, and we're going to be moving on this morning to the church called the Church of uh, Pergamum, or Pergamum, uh, depending on who you listen to. And we're going to be reading verses 12 through 17 and just remember that basic format of these letters that we talked about uh, in the beginning there's an introduction or salutation to a particular church and then there's some reference to jesus as he's revealed himself already through the book of revelation uh, in different ways sometimes there are rebukes that are given uh, but there's also always encouragement that is given by christ for particular things and etc and uh, and then all the letters end with a promise made by Jesus in regard to those who hear what the Spirit is saying to uh, the churches. So verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the one who has this, the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, And you hold fast my name and did not deny my my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have, there some who hold the the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Thus you also have some who are, in the same way, uh, hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, or else I am coming to you quickly. I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him, whoever comes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a, a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who sees it. Now, this city was a special city, and, and you're going to find out every, every one of these cities was special for particular reasons. Uh, but Pergamum was also one of those Roman co- or those Greek colonies established by Greeks at particular times. Uh, in past history, uh, it was a city on a hill. In other words, uh, a city built on a hill, and, for, and, and very often cities are up on hills for reasons, and that is so you can look out across the countryside. And what someone for Pergamum would see if they were looking out from the hilltop was the fertile va- uh, Caicus Valley uh, below them, very rich in nutrients, very a lot of agriculture going on, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. Beautiful place. Uh, One of the most interesting things that is still there, one of the ruins that is there, there is an amphitheater that seats thousands of people that is literally carved into the mountainside. In other words, they took hammers and chisels and they carved out a whole amphitheater, the seats and everything out of the rock that was already there. An amazing place. Uh, it's the place where parchment was developed first. For many years, people had used papyrus coming from Egypt, and there were times when papyrus was readily available and other times when it wasn't. And so they really developed in, uh, a, a method of taking animal skins and treating them chemically so that they could be used as a writing medium. One of the things that came from that was it really was the beginning of books, as we know books, because it was very difficult to put papyrus in pages. On the other hand, you could take these animal skins as parchment now, and you could take individual sheets, and you could sew them together and make books. Uh, Pergamum had a library that was only second to that in size of the one in Alexandria, Egypt. They had over 200,000 scrolls in this library in Pergamum. It was a center for learning. Uh, If we could see it uh, as it was in those days, there would be many of these elongated buildings called stoa. And you've seen pictures of these probably in some of the, uh, the pictures you've seen of ancient Greek cities. They were these long buildings that were open. They had columns to hold the roof up. Uh, but very often they were used as uh, uh, centers of education, shopping, dining. In other words, there's a sense in which maybe it was the prelude to the malls and things that we have today, that sort of thing. So a lot of commerce took place there as well. It was also noted as being the home of the great altar dedicated to the Greek god Zeus, who was the king of the gods. There was an al- also an altar there dedicated to the worship of Caesar. You see, in these days, Pergamum was under the rule of the Romans and had been for quite some time. And this city was the official Roman capital of the province of Asia. So very great Roman prominence here, probably more so than we saw in Ephesus and more so than we saw in Smyrna. A lot of pressure there for everyone. It was okay for you to worship your own gods, but you, being a citizen of Rome, were expected, or a Roman colony, you were expected to worship Caesar as a god. Jesus, as we said, makes reference to himself in ways that he's already alluded to in this particular book. Now here he talks about the one who has the sharp two edged swords, says this and we understand that it's Jesus that is saying this uh, and we talked somewhat about this a few weeks ago uh, in Revelation chapter 116 he seizes the same phrase in regard to himself uh, but it should always bring to light to us or remind uh, remembrance to us a uh, very important passage in scripture that has to do with scripture and this is Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two edged sword, and piercing as far as the divisions of the soul and spirit, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I alluded to this when we were praying this morning, and that is this is Jesus. When he came into this world, he came to fight a battle, but it wasn't a physical battle, it was a spiritual battle. And we know this. We know that he had encounters with Satan himself. We know that he had encounters with the chief priests and and, and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and and Pilate and other people. But his his, His battles were always fought with words. But not just any word. Always with God's word. We already read this morning about the sword of the spirit, which is the weapon that God gives to us. And when Jesus did his spiritual battles, he was using the same very word of God that we have as our Old Testament today. Still, the the same things that were available to Jesus are still available to you and I. Not only that, it's been enhanced a lot because now we have the New Testament, too. But this is our weapon. And it's more than a weapon of words. It has to do with the spirit. It's a spiritual battle. Verse 13. I know where you live, where the throne of Satan is. And you hold to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas. My faithful witness, or it could be translated as my martyr, as we've said before, who was killed among you where Satan lives. Now the throne of Satan here could be represented in a number of things. Number one, it could be reference to the temple that was dedicated to worshipping the false god Zeus it could have to do with a temple there that was there for worshipping Caesar it could mean a lot of things but we do know this that there was a very great sense of evil in Pergamum. It was demonstrated in every aspect of the culture. Evilness. Wickedness. With Satan at the helm, it seemed, to so many people. I think very often, it's very difficult, and I talk about this a lot in my classes at the college, and that is, is hard for you and I very often to relate to the life that so many people in the world live. I mean, we really do have it well. I know we gripe and we complain about this that, and the other, but compared to so many other people in the world today and people that have lived in the world through the history of mankind, you and I have it made in the shade in just about every way. When Lori and I went to Uganda with World Harvest back in, whenever it was, 1979, I think, was the first time that we went, something like that. Uh, Is that right? No. When was it? The 80s. That's right. Forgive me. I'm 65. Uh, One of the things that really... uh, amazed me was some of the conversations we had with the missionaries that had been there for a while. And and one of the things that they were confronted with when they first came and what they were still continu- continuing to have to deal with all the time was dark magic. Witch doctors. That was the religion of the people of Boondabugioh. Black magic. If you didn't feel well, you went to the rich witch doctor. If you wanted some kind of a blessing, you went to the witch doctor. And and the missionaries would talk about this, this sense, this ever sense of present darkness that was upon the land. You could feel it. The neat thing was this, is they had story after story after story to tell about those very witch doctors who had converted to Christianity. And they would bring all of their little trinkets, their magical toys, and this, that, and the other, and they would put them uh, out in front of the church, and they would have a bonfire, and they would burn them to ashes. When we first went there, there was still this sense of darkness that you felt. Fortunately, and blessed for me, I was able to go back some years after that and see how this whole area had been transformed, how that sense of darkness was completely gone. There's a book titled uh, A Distant Grief that I would recommend all of you read. It's written by uh, a Ugandan by the name of Kepha Senpaji. He he, he eventually became a pastor of a church in Kampala uh, during the days of Idi Amin. And if you want a picture of darkness and blackness and whatever, just think about Idi Amin. And it was illegal for them to have a church in the days of Idi Amin. And they did it nonetheless, always under the threat of being arrested, tortured, and probably killed in some horrible fashion. Lori and I were there in Kampala, the first night we ever spent in Africa. And we stayed in the Nile Hotel. The Nile Hotel, someone had come in after Idi Amin had been ousted and, you know, reform had come to the country and established their new government, the new president, and things were very different, become a democracy uh, and and, and all of that. And it was probably one of the nicest places that Lori and I have ever stayed in. It was an internationally ranked hotel. But during the days of Idi Amin, it was called his torture palace. It's where he brought hundreds, thousands of people and did terrible and awful things to them. But then again came the light of Christ shining in the darkness. And it's an entirely different place. We live in a culture that seems to be ever-changing, and I would imagine most of us would say today that it's ever-changing in a negative way. I mean, how many times have you said recently things are just not the way they used to be? Things are not the way they were when I was little. Things were not the way they were when we got married, so on and so on. We know that there has been a huge cultural shift. Randy's getting old, too. In our day. I don't think anyone in this world doubts it. Room doubts it for a minute. That things have changed. They're different. Let me ask you this. What, do you, what if you? If someone asked you this question. Do you think things like mass shootings. Would be some measure of the degree. Of and, uh, evilness and depravity. That happen to be present. In our present world. If that was a measure. would you, Would you have to say that things. Are dark and they're getting darker. What about this? Do you believe that Satan is present in this world? Do you ever even give Satan a thought? If you don't, you should. He is a real being. And compared to you and I, he is a powerful being. But we know this. We know that God, our Father, allows him to exist for what reasons we don't know, we don't really understand. And we know that God could squash him like a grape at any minute. That he is no threat to God whatsoever. Never has been, never will be. But he's here. He's at work, and he was at work in Pergamum. He's at work in our nation. He's at work in this world. Well, remember, we talked about Polycarp last week. The the bishop of Smyrna, who was a martyr for his faith, Well, Smyrna had Polycarp. Brigham had Antipas. Mentioned here specifically in Scripture. A man who died because he was a Christian. And he refused to live as a pagan. He worshipped his God. Worshipped his Lord and Savior. And he died for it. Died for it. The amazing thing is this: is even in this hostile environment, environment hostile to Christianity, the church flourished and it grew. That was true for all of these churches. You're going to find as we go through all seven of them, there was net, there was not a single one of them that had an environment that was conducive to living as a Christian. There was all kinds of pressure on you to live otherwise, persecution in every way that you can imagine, Auster, being Aust, uh, set apart from your family, separated from your family and loved ones friends and neighbors who would no longer have anything to do with you, suffering financially because you were one of those Christians and people didn't want to do business with you. If the darkness continues to grow in our land, my friends, eventually the landscape is going to look more and more and more like this. So what is the solution? Christ. Christ is the solution. This is one of the things I love about the PCA is we are so church-planning-oriented people. Because it's, it's, it's things like starting new churches. That's what's going to make the difference. It's the only thing that ever has... Satan was dwelling there in their midst. They stood firm in their faith. And Antipas dying because of it. Jesus says, on the other hand, even though he commends them for some things, he rebukes them now for something. These rebukes are in some of the letters. Some of them, they don't have rebukes. But there is one here, and this is what he says. I have a few things against you because you uh, have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, uh, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit uh, acts of immorality. Now, if you know anything about Balaam, he's an Old Testament character. Primarily you're going to find him in Numbers uh, chapter 22 and chapter 23. Uh, he was the so supposed prophet that Balak came because uh, he wanted him to curse Israel, and Balaam refused to do that. The impression you would get about Balaam from just from Numbers 22 and 23 is that well, he was a good guy. He, was, he, he didn't say anything God told him he couldn't say, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the problem is this, is Balaam is referred to in five or six other places in Scripture and never in a, a positive light. It's always in a negative light. That he was a bad person. And that he, in some way or another, encouraged Israel to turn away from God and to live like Moabites, like pagans. He brings to light two things here. One of those is eating things that are sacrificed to idols, and the other is to commit acts of immorality. Now, in our culture, animal sacrifices are not common. There are some people who do it, and you need to understand that. There are some people in the United States today who still can practice animal sacrifice. Well, what the issue came down to is this, and this is something that Paul addressed in his first letter to the Corinthians, and that is this, is it okay for Christians to eat the meat that is left over after sacrificial offerings? Because what would happen is this is and you need to understand that this was associated with idol worship, that all these idols that we're talking about, they had animal sacrifices that took place there. That some of that animal would be used burned, just like in the you know, in the old testament, Israel burned up on the altar. Some of it very often was eaten by the person who brought that sacrifice, just like with the Old Testament, Israel. But there was very often meat left over, and the question came to what do you do with it? Can you take it and sell it in the meat market to people? Now, in Corinth, and yeah, I would imagine the same thing was true here, was there was a disagreement amongst the believers about what is the appropriate thing for us to do or not do when it comes to meat that's been sacrificed to pagan idols. It was a big issue. is a dividing point in the church in Corinth. What Paul ultimately says is this. Is this okay if you do and it's okay if you don't? As long as you do it with the right mindset. What I would say to you is this is more than likely what was going on here is there were people in the church that were at least mildly practicing what is called syncretism. In other words, there were people in the church who were spending still spending some time at the pagan idols in the temples. And then on Sundays they were worshiping the Lord. You see this over and over again in the old testament. How many times was Israel doing that? They continued to worship the Lord their God in the temple and but, but at the same time they were they adopted the, the religions of the of the people of the lands around them over and over again. In other words, they were people who wanted to live in the world. When it was convenient and not apart from it. Now we understand this that we all live in the world, right? At least for now, as it is. But how will we apply this appropriately to people today? Well, if you think about the parable of the sower, Jesus makes it very clear there that there are some people who claim faith in Him who really don't have faith. In other words, what we're talking about here is is, is people, and I, I and my fear is this is is there are a good number of people today in our wor- in our world in our land who claim to be Christians but very often they live their life just as if they were of the world. They do the same things worldly people would do. They think the same things that they do. They say the things that they would do. Jesus, in a sense, for some people, is like their their trump card or their their ticket into heaven. In other words... He's the thing they fall back on, and that is I'm going to heaven. Why? Because Jesus died for me. But, but at the same time, they don't have this idea, this sense that he demands their worship, that he demands their worship of him only, and not of the things of the world. I mean, how many people do you know? They claim the name of Christ, but at the same time, they live very worldly lives. How often do we do it ourselves? Honestly. What about sexual immorality in our land? Do you think it's more prevalent or less prevalent than it was not so many years ago? Just remember this. Things have always gone on behind closed doors. But today it's as though the doors are open and anything and everything is socially acceptable. That may be okay for worldly people, but it's never okay for the people of God. Never okay for the children of God. So if Jesus walked in the door this morning and he basically made a proclamation to us in regard to the kind of things that we find here in these letters? What do you think Jesus would say? Would he commend us for absolutely everything? Or would he have some degree of rebuke for us? Are we living for him or are we living for ourselves? Do we live like he would have us live or do we live basically like the world lives and every now and then we mention his name just to feel good about it? You may not realize this, but very often prostitution was associated with worship places. Now how in the world have they ever made that connection or whatever, but they had these things called cult prostitutes, very much very often associated with these pagan temples where they worship these idols. Can you imagine? Again, that is, that is of the world, that is not of God at all he also mentions that there's some there that hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans now we don't really even know what they believe what their understanding was or speculation about it and things like that but we can understand this that they were people who encouraged other people and it was a philosophy or religion of folks who encouraged people to behave and act in ungodly fashion To follow after sin, not after holiness. Jesus calls them to repent. Repent. How often do we read that word in Scripture? A lot. What does it mean? Well, certainly it means feeling sorry because you sinned and you know it. Uh, but there's reasons for feeling sorry. One of those is you may feel sorry because you know you're going to suffer because of it. Just like a little kid when they're, they're going to be punished. Very often that's why they're sorry. They're sorry not because they did something wrong. They're sorry because they knew they're going to they're suffer as a result of what they did. what true repentance looks like guys and gals is it is heartfelt. It is your heart grieving because you know you have grieved God's heart. Understand the difference? Do we have things to repent of? The answer to that is question is yes every single one of us. Repentance is not just something that we do at the time we come to faith in Jesus Christ. Repentance is one of those ongoing things that should be a major aspect of our life as a believer. So what do you have to repent of this morning? If you say nothing, then you need to think about where you're at. You don't know yourself that well. We always have things to repent of. And what does First John tell us? That when we confess our sins, that he is holy and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Or else I'm coming to you quickly. Now, do we have the promise that Jesus is coming quickly also? Has every Christian lived under that promise that Jesus is quickly coming? The answer to that is yes. I mean, the thinking here is this is repent now because you're better to repent now than to do it later. No, do it before he comes rather than when he comes. And when he comes, he's going to war. He's going to do it with the sword of his mouth. With the word of God. Again. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What he says to us. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Now we know something about manna, when probably the hidden manna maybe has something to do with a jar of manna that was put in the Ark of the Covenant to be preserved. Who knows? what we're talking about here is nourishment, spiritual nourishment that comes from him, a gift of God. He talks about a white stone. Now, in Scripture, and very often, whiteness means clean, bright, brilliant, purified, things like that. That there will be a cleanness. And we understand what it is, and that is we'll be wiped clean from every vestige of sin completely, absolutely. It's what we call our glorification. Where finally, in every way, we will be sinless. No sin anymore. Stones, on the other hand, very often represent firmness or permanency, those kinds of things. Do you see what's being alluded to here? This is a cleanness, a whiteness, a holiness that is permanent, that is not just here for a while and then gone, not short-lasting but everlasting. Everlasting. A new name. God has a name for you, a new name, and He knows what it is. Jesus is coming, could be any time. Any moment. Now's the time for repentance. Now's the time of renewal. So I just want to encourage you this week to maybe give some thought. To some things that you might need to repent of. Because we all have them. It's easy to pass over them, uh, but they're there. But there will come a time, and this is the promise that is uh, underlying all of this, that there will come a time when that will no longer be true. And I don't know about you, but I look forward to that time. What a glorious and wonderful time that will be. Sin will be gone. Absolutely. Totally. Forever. Hallelujah.